Before I start this episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art of the pod. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. The world of financial crime has another busy week with plenty of sanctions, money laundering and cyber. Cyber, cyber everywhere. So let's crack on with it. As usual, the links to the principal documents mentioned in the podcast are in the description. We'll start with sanctions. The British government has sanctioned the Iranian prosecutor general after the execution of a British Iranian national, Ali Reza Akbari. The basis for the imposition is stated to be that the British government described what the British government described as appalling human rights violations. Sticking with individual sanctions, the Russians have sanctioned several members of the British government, including the Foreign Secretary, the Housing Secretary, and the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. The sanctions were imposed for what the Russian Foreign Ministry described as the anti-Russian course of the United Kingdom government. Not surprising and mildly pathetic tit-for-tat. Now to the European Union, where various newswires have reported on leaks concerning the possible 10th round of sanctions against Russia. The rumours across the wires is that much more will be caught by this latest round, including restrictions on Russia's nuclear sector, Prohibition on trade in diamonds. In fact, there's been a lot in the news about that. Extension of dual-use goods prohibitions. Cutting off additional Russian banks from SWIFT. Ban on additional Russian media outlets. And new sanctions on Russia's possibly, well, one of its only few remaining friends, namely Belarus. In the UK, there's another Committee of Parliament which has announced a new inquiry into the effectiveness of Russian sanctions. You may remember, and you'd need a decent memory to do it, but we covered the Treasury Select Committee's hearing on effective sanctions in Episode 4 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. This is Episode 42, just for context. This latest inquiry, as the Chair Angus McNeil has said aims to understand how effective the UK trade sanctions have been and their impact on businesses and consumers both here uh, well here at home as well as examining the effectiveness of the government's guidance for businesses and what further support may be required experts stakeholders and interested parties are encouraged to submit evidence to the inquiry by Friday 17th March 2023 the link to the press release is in the podcast description. And finally on sanctions this week, and this just scraped under the wire, the US Department of Justice has announced charges against Vladislav Osipov and Richard Masters, who is a British national, with facilitating sanctions evasion and money laundering in relation to the ownership and operation of a superyacht, Tango, which is owned by Victor Vexelberg. Now, Vexelberg is a Russian national and has been sanctioned by the US and the UK following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The link to the press release from the US Department of Justice is in the podcast description. Now we turn 
away from sanctions to corruption. And actually, there's been a real uptick in corruption stories. A few of them I had to spike. But anyway, we'll start with the European Union and the continuing fallout from the Qatar corruption scandal. This week at a special plenary of the European Parliament, the Speaker Roberta Mazzola pledged greater transparency and accountability, with a starting point being a focus on those individuals who represent third countries and their interests. This story is set to continue to run for some time, but we'll leave it there for now. Well, actually, no, there's one extra bit. It's also been announced this week that Pierre Antonio Panzeri, a former member of the European Parliament, has been arrested as part of that continuing investigation into the Qatari bribery scandal. It's alleged that he is the leader of the network behind its operation. We'll leave it there. It's bound to be back. We'll stick with Europe for the next story, where Greco, the group of states against corruption, has identified shortcomings in the anti-corruption regime applicable in Bulgaria. It notes that senior government officials are not subject to a proper integrity framework in that there is no applicable code of ethics, no awareness raising on integrity matters is provided, and no mechanism for confidential counselling on ethical issues is in place. Moreover, and further down the scale, the police service needs a strengthened operational independence with a dedicated anti-corruption strategy implemented, including a code of ethics. Don't know whether it would be churlish to say something similar in the UK would be invaluable, but we apparently have those mechanisms in place anyway. The link to the press release and the report are in the podcast description. Now, an interesting corruption story from the US, and this has appeared across a number of news wires this week, where two former executives of Fox, the global media organisation, have gone on trial for wire fraud and money laundering. The allegations in the trial relate to corruption and bribes in the acquisition of major rights to footballing events. That trial continues, so I won't say much more on that. And finally on corruption this week to Vietnam, where the president has resigned in the midst of an anti-corruption drive in the country where the strong rumour circling around was that he would, in any event, have been sacked. Nguyen Juan Phuc is alleged to have been responsible for wrongdoing by some ministers who served under him when he was prime minister. Huge apologies for the pronunciation of that name. Now, that's it for corruption. We move to look at corporate enforcement, where there is a big story coming out of the United States, to the Department of Justice, which has indicated that deep incentives will be given where corporations self-report wrongdoing. Assistant Attorney General Kenneth A. Polite Jr. made the remarks in a speech in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday this week. Polite stated, If a company voluntarily self-discloses misconduct, fully cooperates, and timely and appropriately remediates, but a criminal resolution is still warranted, the criminal division will, this is the first point, now accord or recommend to a sentencing court at least 50% 
and up to 75% off of the low end of the US sentencing guidelines fine range, except in the case of a criminal recidivist. In that case, the reduction will generally not be from the low end of the fine range, and in all cases, prosecutors will have discretion to determine the starting point within the guidelines range. This revision represents a significant increase from the previous potential maximum reduction of 50% off the guidelines range. And secondly, in these circumstances, we will, that is the Department of Justice, generally not require a corporate guilty plea, including for criminal recidivists, absent multiple or particularly egregious aggravating circumstances, while relevant and important criminal recidivism alone will not always mean a plea. This policy applies to all criminal division corporate resolutions, not only voluntary self-disclosure cases. Some cracking words in that there, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, while maintaining a broadly tough stance, it would appear that there is a welcome, well certainly from corporates anyway, welcome to this softening of the edges of corporate enforcement. In fact, I read one commentator say this, and then it got copied around the news wires as, Others started to say it, but anyway, I read one commentator describe the softening as the year of the carrot, and I couldn't have put it better myself. But as I said, that was used once and then repeated across the week as the story was gradually picked up by other newswires. The link to Polite's, I haven't mentioned his great name, but I will now anyway, the link to Polite's full speech is in the podcast description. Other news out of the US with a report this week from the Financial Times which stated that fines of almost 5 billion US dollars were levied against financial institutions for anti-money laundering breaches, especially where there were know-your-customers or customer due diligence flaws. This is an increase in 50% on the previous year. Certainly the enforcement shift identified in the previous story might be welcome news in the light of this one. Now... I said at the beginning, it's been a case of cyber, cyber everywhere, and so it is this week. In fact, cyber news is becoming so common now. There are cyber attacks, daily cyber attacks, and daily reports of initiatives to respond to cyber attacks. In fact, I put my reputation on the line, such as it is, it isn't really much of a reputation, and say that cyber stories are likely to be the most prevalent form of financial crime story at least for the rest of 2023, if not for the rest of the decade, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, we'll start with a couple of minor stories. First, the Royal Mail, following its ransomware attack last week, continues to urge its customers to send parcels over, uh, not to send parcels overseas while it seeks to build its response to the attack. The Royal Mail is the mail delivery service in the United Kingdom. The attack seems to have caused a significant disruption and, as I think I mentioned, it was uh, an attack from a ransomware uh, organisation or criminal entity. There was a stop press to this story because I read late on that they just started limited overseas parcel deliveries, so they're clearly in the phase of recovery from this cyber attack. Further news on cyber this week, and that it is that a joint report from the National Cyber Security Centre and the National Grid for Learning, which is an educational charity which I had not heard of before, uh, has found that 78% of schools in the United Kingdom 
have been the victim of at least one form of cyber incident in 2022 where 7% of uh, where 7% of schools report significant disruption as a result drilling down into those figures just over one in five schools around 21% experienced a malware or a ransomware attack and just under a fifth around 18% experienced disruption such that staff were unable to access important information the report the link is available in the podcast description but i'll just add an addendum to this my children's schools have been attacked several times and my eldest child's school was the subject of a significant cyber attack which disrupted large elements of the day-to-day business of the school so this is not something that i would guess anybody is unfamiliar with Uh, What I'll end with this week is a story from some, I suppose, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has been busy. First, with introductory remarks made by Tobias Adrian, who is the IMF financial counsellor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF. He made his comments at a cyber security workshop. The remarks covered lessons learned from recent geopolitical conflicts and it's certainly the case that there's been an uptick in cyber attacks following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The challenges that could arise from the transformation of the financial landscape and the ensuring effective regulation and supervision of cyber risks to achieve operational and cyber resilience. The link to the introductory remarks is available in the podcast description. I'll end this short section on cyber by uh, uh, mentioning, flagging a a blog post which is on the International Monetary Fund website on uh, crypto contagion, contagion, the risk of something spreading. It's entitled Crypto Contagion underscores why global regulators must act fast to stem the risk. It argues for stronger financial regulation and supervision and the development of global standards. Now that, to me, if we're talking global standards, sounds like a job for the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. The link to the blog post is in the podcast description. Now, money laundering. This is a story, the first one, linked to cyber and the uh, the US Department of the Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, what it knows as FinCEN, has identified Bitslato Limited, or Bitslato, a financial institution operating outside the US, as a primary money laundering concern in connection with Russian illicit finance. As the press release provides, this is the first order issued pursuant to Section 9714A of the Combating Russian Money Laundering Act and highlights the serious threat that business operations that facilitate and support Russian illicit finance pose to U.S. national security and the integrity of the U.S. financial sector. The order prohibits certain transmittals of funds involving Bitslato by any covered financial institution. In the order, FinCEN determined that Bitslato played a critical role in laundering convertible virtual currency, CVC, by facilitating illicit transactions for ransomware actors operating in Russia, including Conti, a ransomware-as-a-service group that has links to the Russian government. The link to the press release from FinCEN is in the podcast description, but 
Later this week, there was again a linked piece of news to this Bitslato story, and that is that the founder and majority owner has been charged with unlicensed money transmitting after processing more than $700 million worth of illicit funds, including the proceeds of ransomware. Everything is connected to everything else. Anatoly Leg Kodimov was arrested in Miami and was arraigned earlier this week in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. The link to the U.S. Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Now, after something of a lull, the Gambling Commission in the United Kingdom has been at it again, issuing fines for anti-money laundering breaches committed by firms operating in the gambling industry. First, Vivaro Limited, which trades as VBET, has been fined £337,631 for failures in its AML compliance and its social responsibility objectives. Examples of some of the breaches include that customers were able to deposit a significant sum of money before Know Your Customer KYC checks were carried out and insufficient guidance was provided within its policies or procedures as to how staff should verify source of funds with what supporting documents should be requested. The rest, and there is quite a bit, can be found in the the full public statement, the link to which is in the podcast description. The UK Gambling Commission has again issued, and has also issued, another fine this week of £442,750 against Tony Bet for failing to conduct adequate risk assessments of the business being used for money laundering and terrorist financing, and failing to ensure that they have appropriate policies, procedures and controls to prevent money laundering and terrorist financing. In addition to the AML fa- failings, and it is as is quite common with these fines issued by the Gambling Commission, Tony Bet has also The fine also reflects its failure to have fair and transparent terms and conditions and certain social responsibility failings made in relation to gambling. Like I said, there is often an overlap when they fine for one thing, they tend to fine for others. The link to the press release in the Tony Bet case can be found in the podcast description. Now, as we mentioned in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast recently, the Economic Crime and Transparency Bill is currently going through Parliament and various amendments are being suggested along the way. Certainly some some amendments suggested recently to strengthen the money laundering or anti-money laundering provisions in the bill. Well, there are a couple of minor stories which have come out in relation to the bill. Uh, First of all, The government has issued a new fact sheet on the bill. The fact sheet, new information request power for the Solicitor's Regulation Authority in relation to economic crime, was updated on Wednesday this week, and the link is in the podcast description. So it's a very specific fact sheet aimed at the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, which is the regulatory authority for solicitors in England and Wales. And also it's been announced this week that the second reading of the bill in the House's Uh, the House of Lords, that's the upper chamber of the Houses of Parliament in the United Kingdom, uh, has been confirmed for the 8th of February. Now, I'll end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by going, uh, taking a look at a story that takes us back a few years and the conviction of LIBOR rigger Tom Hayes. 
Hayes, you may remember in 2015, was convicted of eight counts of conspiracy to defraud, and there were subsequent confiscation proceedings against him, which, as it happens, made some interesting reading for anyone interested in the TR1 land conveyancing form. Anyway, some good news for Hayes is that the Criminal Cases Review Commission will make a decision in March on whether Hayes can take his case to the Court of Appeal following new evidence which has been identified since the original trial. As an addendum, and to promote another podcast, you can listen to financial journalist Lucy McNulty interview Hayes in the latest edition of the Following the Rules podcast, the link to which I've put in the podcast description. That's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. I hope you have a great week. Bye.